This programme is brought to you by The Old Market. Visit theoldmarket.com or find us on Twitter at Tom Venue. Welcome to the second episode of Wilder Stories, taped before a live audience at The Old Market. I'm CJ Thorpe Tracy and I'll be your guide. Make yourself as comfortable as you can, and for the next hour we dive into the colour blue. Blue is so resonant of melancholy they named a whole music after it, yet at the same time blue is the sea, and what E.E. E. Cummings calls the blue dream of sky. Blue is adult content, and jeans, and the cops, yet blue is calm, and distance, and, well, colours taste different to different people. Wilder stories will always be an off-balance reflection, and tonight we begin with time travel, which sounds like this. I have a day job where sometimes I have to park my car on the seafront. Quite a lot of the time recently, when I get out, I'm really struck by wide open view over the sea, stony grey blue of the waves and the clear open blue of the sky. I think about how once upon a time, we where we are now, all of this was all under the sea, a wide, warm, shallow, cretaceous sea. Little sea creatures float about in it, and when they died, they drift down to the bed. And their shells would all build up over thousands and thousands of years until the weight pressed them all down into chalk, a great layer of chalk. Time passed, things changed, and the sea wasn't there anymore. And that great layer of chalk was out in the open, under the sky, in one long plain stretching all the way to the south of France. And when humans came, they could walk over that plain, back and forth. And they did, back and forth, back and forth, following the herds that they depended on for their livelihood. Time passed again. Things changed and the sea would come back, we'd be cut off, and it would go away and we'd be joined again. But that chalk would always still be there. And now the sea's here again, and we're an island once more. And there are some who'd say that, you know, we've found ourselves on this side, and there are other people who found themselves over there on that patch of land and And those of us here on this patch of land, then uh, that sea, that barrier has has shaped our lives, has made us who we are. We've gone our way here, doing things the way we've chosen. And and over the years, great threats and danger would come over the sea. People coming to conquer land and destroy homes. As recently as the 1940s, that seafront in Brighton, where I parked my car, would have been 
shut off to the public, would have been covered with barbed wire, fortifications and gun emplacements because of the fear of the Nazi danger lurking over the sea. At the same time, not everyone who came over the sea was a danger, and, and even if they were, some of them stayed. The Normans and the Saxons both came through Sussex. Sussex itself is the land of the South Saxons, and the Vikings had passed this way as well, and before all of them there was the Romans and the Belgian, who knows who else. And they settled, and they brought with them their own stories, their own ideas. And they became a part of who we are. And archaeologists will say that we can see, going back all those thousands and thousands of years ago, when the land was thick with forests and deep with mud, and there were wild beasts in the undergrowth, the safest way for people to travel would have been down the rivers in boats and out into the sea, round the coasts or across over to the other side, and people did. Boats going back and forth, back and forth over thousands of years, bringing resources and goods crafted from materials pulled from the earth, and stories and ideas and culture, even language. And that's always been a part of who we are. These days, more and more and more, when I get out of my car, on the seafront and I look out over the sea, I think, is it a bridge? Is it a barrier? I think it's increasingly the case that it's up to each and every one of us to decide how we approach the sea under the wide blue sky. Thank you, John Mason. Before we go on, I think we ought to ground ourselves with some context, some history. A voice of clarity to tell us something about the colour blue itself. Here is Alexandra Losker, who knows more about colour than anyone else I've met, to unpack the blue. I guess I have to explain I'm an art historian. Um, so uh, colour is my profession. I have dealt with colour and I've researched colour for the last 10 years. So I'm going to try the impossible and give you a brief cultural history of the colour blue in about 10 minutes. <laughs> and I shall start with um, a quote from Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. He was a German poet and playwright and he was rather full of himself and wrote the largest, the longest, the most substantial theory uh, of colour to date and published it in 1810 and he said this is not just my greatest work is also the greatest work on color well he has a few interesting things to say and this is what he said about blue 
As yellow is always accompanied by light, so it may be said that blue still brings a principle of darkness with it. This colour has a peculiar and almost indescribable effect on the eye. As a hue, it is powerful, but it is on the negative side, and in its highest purity is, as it were, a stimulating negation. Its appearance, then, is a kind of contradiction between excitement and repose. So, a negative colour, is it a cold colour? It's often described as a cold colour. And why do we associate it with darkness? For painters like Picasso and Edward Munch, it stands for melancholy and death. For romantic poets and painters, uh, in fact, it's a symbol for longing and sadness. And it is, in fact, the closest color to black and therefore darkness. And is it the absence of light and color? But despite all these sort of negative associations, there were other artists who thought this is a really powerful and expressive color. And in the early 20th century, people like Vasily Kandinsky thought, well, this is, this is a symbol of power and of masculinity and of an animal spirit. And Dewey started painting horses blue and called their avant-garde group the Blue Rider, der Blaue Reiter. Despite the negative connotations, it is actually most people's favorite color. It is my favorite color. And quite a number of sort of uh, surveys have been done. And it's always blue in the Western world that comes out with a huge margin as the most popular color. So we clearly have a fascination with blue. And what is it about it? What is it about it? There are a few very odd things about blue. For example, you do not find any blue in prehistoric cave paintings. And it doesn't really feature in classical antiquity. So the Greek language didn't really have a word for blue, and it's got much to do with how we think about color or how other cultures thought about color. It's about concepts, really. And in the ancient world, there was this concept of darkness and light. So we have dark colors and light colors and don't necessarily need names. And uh, if at all, they would be called black and white. And then there's maybe red. So that was classical antiquity. And this continues. And Goethe still, you know, 1800 years later, has this idea of polarity. We have darkness on one side and light on the other. So blue appears where light disappears. And uh, it is actually the last remaining color that people who go blind will see. Our eyes seem to respond to colors even when they're blind. We have an incredibly wide range of blues and it manifests itself in an incredible array. So we seem to crave blue, our eyes crave blue. The world appears blue from space. The sky looks blue to us, and water often does. And the further away things are, the bluer they appear. So it's very much part of our world. So how can we explain that? And I think we need to sort of go into science just a little bit. And I'm not a great scientist, but I know the basics. One of the explanations for having so much blue in our life is that 
on the visible spectrum, visible to the human eye, which ranges from violet on, on the short wavelength side to red on the long wavelength side. The blue and violet range takes up the largest space, so it's the highest proportion. So there, is, there are more blues than any other colors. And uh, if you see into uh, the ultraviolet range, you're probably a bird. <laughs> so blue takes up a lot of space on one, what we can actually see in terms of colors. And that explains why the sky is blue. If there was nothing in the air, what you would see on a bright sunny day would be whiteness. But of course, there's always something in the air. There's particles in the air. And when these particles are hit by light, the light is scattered and is reflected and refracted. And the shorter wavelengths in the blue area, they're the ones who are more likely to be scattered. So that's why the sky appears blue. And that's also why when there's more stuff in the air, such as pollution, we get a wider range of colors. So that's the science bit. So we have more blue than anything else. But what about art and what about culture? So how, you know, how have we painted the blue world and, and uh, what pigments were available? Uh, and I did say that there's no blue in cave paintings. And that's simply to do with the fact that you can't just pick up any blue from the ground, whereas you can pick up ochres. So what's under your feet you can pick up. You can maybe create a simple black by burning something. Blues, not so much. Not so many blues you can so readily pick off the ground. And uh, it's also not terribly so present in Western European culture until well into the Middle Ages. However, in ancient Egypt, there is a lot of blue. And as soon as humans started painting and being creative, they started meddling with color. They started trying to make pigments. And the Egyptians invented what is probably still the most wonderful artificial pigment ever created, synthetic pigment ever made, and it's called Egyptian blue. And that is the blue you see on those glazed of little hippos, and you see it on mummies, you see it on the ceilings of tombs. And we know roughly what it's made of. It's sort of a calcium silicon mix. But we don't have the exact recipe, but what it tells us is that the Egyptians had an incredible knowledge of chemistry to make such an amazing pigment. And it ranges from the one most wonderful turquoise to the deepest blues, absolutely spectacular. It is incredibly stable and it is luminescent. It actually emits infrared light. So four and a half thousand years ago, we have that most amazing of blues and we have lost the recipe until we find the manuscript <laughs> that tells us this is exactly how we did it. We can't replicate it. And where did they put it? Well, you know, on small things, big things, even on the ceilings of tombs. And uh, what happened that happens there is, I don't know whether you've ever been to one of those tombs, is you see yellow or golden stars. And it's quite, quite a literal thing. So they paint the sky where the ceiling is, and then they paint the stars onto it in a golden color, a yellow color. And actually, when you think of it, that looks so great because on the color wheel, those are pretty much opposite colors. And that's why they sparkle, that's why they pop.
top, as we say. And the same principle uh, was applied by Vincent van Gogh, so, you know, several thousand years later, painting his starry night pictures. It's that opposite to the blue. So then we go into the Middle Ages, and there's nothing much between, not many blues, and then in the Middle Ages, you get cobalt and glass, that fantastic combination. So walk into any sort of great medieval church with blue stained glass windows, and you'll see what I mean. That's when the blue explosion comes. Saint-Chapelle in Paris is an amazing example of that. And on a more mundane level, what we also have is woad. And woad is a plant, and woad gives you a dye colour. It dyed pretty much every garment in Europe blue for centuries. There were very, very strong woad industries, very good woad industries in France, in Germany, in England, in Scotland. And it is roughly what I'm wearing now, but woad was sort of, you know, eventually overtaken by indigo. Same principle, of course, indigo came from India, so it threatened the woad industry here. But the real revolution of blue comes with ultramarine. And ultramarine is, you know, apart from Egyptian blue, probably the other great pigment in the history of blue. And ultramarine is named after its story. So the word tells you that it comes from across the sea, ultramarino. And this pigment, which we have a little sort of bottle of here, was made from lapis lazuli. So it's a, it's a mineral pigment. And the best lapis lazuli can be found in remote caves of what is now northern Afghanistan. So in the Middle Ages, people started trading in lapis lazuli and you know, turned it into ultramarine pigments. Imagine the journey of just you know, that one pigment uh, sourced in those caves, somehow taken to a trading place or where it could be turned into pigment. And for a long time, that was Venice, the gateway to the east. And then it was traded by paint dealers. Uh, and it was at one point more expensive than gold. And that influences what you paint with it, of course. And that's why in medieval and Renaissance art, especially in religious paintings, the people that are dressed in blue tend to be the most important ones in the painting. So it tends to be the Virgin Mary. <laughs> and uh, it is a fabulous pigment, but extraordinarily expensive. And quite often artists or people who commission paintings try to sort of have a, a ground layer of a cheaper pigment and have a thin layer of ultramarine on it. In non-religious paintings, of course, there's great examples. You see fantastic ultramarine in Titian's skies. And, of course, Vermeer used it and didn't mix it with any other colour, only white. So that's what you see in the girl with pearl earring, that wonderful turban, that blue is ultramarine. But there was a need for more colour, for cheaper colour. And... We often say that the history of modern colour, of modern blue, begins in 1705, 1706, with Prussian blue. And there's a story and a half. Prussian blue is a sort of iron-based pigment, which was invented or you know, discovered quite by accident by a paint maker who wanted to make a red lake pigment and accidentally created a very deep blue and never looked back. <laughs> and he worked with an alchemist, Conrad Dippel, 
And from that moment onwards, the uniforms of the Prussian army were dyed blue in this Prussian blue. So it's fantastically rich pigment, and you find it everywhere from the mid-18th century onwards. There's a lot of it in the Royal Pavilion. Prussian blue also goes halfway around the world or all the way around the world to the Far East, either as a pigment or as the recipe. And it is used by Japanese artists in those famous woodblock prints. The wave, Hokusai, Prussian blue. <laughs> and the Chinese dyed tea for the export market. So Prussian blue leaves Europe, comes back as a you know, tea dye. So when we go through you know, the 18th and the 19th century, of course, more and more synthetic pigments are being created. So in the, in the later 1800s, we have all these fantastic new synthetic pigments. And there's too many to mention, really. One is cobalt blue been around for a long, long time as a porcelain glaze, but now finally available as pigment. And you see a lot of cobalt blue in the Impressionists' uh, works. That was helped greatly by the fact that also collapsible tubes for oil paints had been invented. So that made it easier to paint outdoors, paint the blue sky in cobalt blue, in artificial ultramarine, which had also been invented. So we have that fantastic period of sometimes dubious but generally very exciting new blues. But of course, nobody knew what would happen to these. So we've arrived in the 20th century, and I've mentioned that sort of interest in the symbolic power of blue with the, with the Expressionists. And we can't mention sort of, you know, uh, all the people who were into blue in the 20th century. But of course, there's the famous Yves Klein blue, invented by Yves Klein or patented by him. But I'd like to finish with an artist who was inspired by blue, filmmaker, poet, uh, who I just missed. I came to England and, and he was frequenting the bookshop where I had my first job, but I, but I had missed him by a few years. It's Derek Jarman. And he uh, went blind, complications uh, from his illness, and he knew he was dying and he made a film called Blue. And it is basically 76 minutes of a blue screen. <laughs> And he said, I'm doing this because it's a highly saturated blue screen. And he said, well, this is the last color that I can see. And of course, we now know why, because that is what the human eye responds to, even the blind human eye. So you see this blue screen and it seems to pulse and there's a lot of music going on and sound effects. And uh, it ends with a poem which really sort of transports us through the daydreams of a dying man. Uh, it's beautifully pitched and it's called Pearl Fishers in Azure Seas, or Azure Seas, again, a pigment, as you write. I'm just going to read the last few lines. Our life will pass like the traces of a cloud and be scattered like mist that is chased by the rays of the sun. For our time is the passing of a shadow and our lives will run like sparks through the stubble I place a delphinium blue upon your grave.
When I was younger, a child, life was pretty neat. I had loads of teddies and dollies. I never went hungry. My parents paid for my education. The sun didn't shine every day, but bearing in mind the storm that was to hit, I would say life was a little cushy. The neighbours cut the lawn the day after each other. They got a new car hours within each other. The biggest drama to hit our street was when one of the neighbours had her sitting room redecorated and she hadn't told anyone first. That obviously was her fate sealed. Life continued in this bubble of ignorance. Then, my godmother died and my grandfather died three weeks later. I couldn't cope with this. Nobody could help me. Neither of my parents could explain where God was when they were dying or what the point in doctors were when we couldn't save each other and neither could find anybody who knew what the point in living was. As time progressed, I became increasingly destructive. My mind couldn't settle. I felt sick all the time and I seriously considered killing myself. Because I felt sick all the time, I went to the school nurse. I wanted an anti-vomiting tablet, but I didn't want to explain how I knew I didn't need to go home or that I knew that I wasn't contagious. I told her how sad it was, how sad I was. It sort of all fell out of my mouth like an overfilled shopping bag. She seemed to understand. Finally, somebody was on my side. Only she contacted my GP, who contacted my mother, and told her everything. The GP thought that I should see a psychiatrist, but my parents quashed that idea. No, no, mental illness doesn't occur in our family. Mental illness happens to skint people who smell like benefits. My puzzling behaviour went on for years. It was never talked about but my bonkers behaviour was always the elephant in the room. After my grim GCSEs and everybody else was getting jobs, but I clearly wasn't up to it, they started pulling fast ones to inquisitive relatives, focusing on her studies. We want her to have a break. After I somehow managed to pass a few A-levels and con some university into taking me on, my behaviour became increasingly damaging. Drugs, sex, alcohol. There was no stopping me now. The more I achieved, the worse it got. I wasn't smug Hetty strutting about on her gap yard. I was resentful that I was alive and I couldn't keep up this life for much longer. At university, though, I chose to fight. I saw doctor after doctor who gave me rounds of pointless medicines which didn't work and tried to make me talk. I endured endless offensive counselling sessions, but eventually I began to give up hope. My parents didn't support my plight particularly. My father bluntly informed me I'd never get a job now. Here began an onslaught of suicide attempts, overdoses, hanging, trying to jump in front of buses and trains. When my uncle died in July, before I was 21, I really lost it. To 
watch another family member die and that capacity was beyond cruel. He'd had a liver transplant and had in part drank himself to death. My skin wasn't just blue with depression now, my whole body was. I remember lying to friends about where I was so I could overdose and it'd be too late. Eventually though, somehow I clung on. I'd get so low that I would try to kill myself, fail, and eventually have a new sense of faith. My story isn't about other people's failing. It isn't a whinge at my parents or at the medical profession. It's a story of hope, because I clung on. I fought back until somebody helped me. With the money from my bank loan and five credit cards, I managed to see a private psychiatrist. I managed to get a place at drama school. My cousin helped me place my behaviour in order, see patterns, and I got a diagnosis. Then I moved to Brighton. Although I moved five times in three years, was put in a homeless refuge for vulnerable women, which I then ran away from to stay in a hostel, I responded well to some new medication and a slightly more stable lifestyle. Now I work as a supply teacher and as an actor. My mental illness is still the elephant in the room, but like elephants in the zoo, a lot of the time it stays locked up. Thank you, Sophie Methwin-Turner and Alexandra Losko. In the blueness Oh, the blueness In the blueness I don't feel so blue in the blueness Oh, the blueness In the blueness I don't feel so blue The In-N-Out burger sign Hanging high over you Grilled cheese Animal style, God-fearing food In the blueness, oh the blueness In the blueness, I don't feel so blue This is my life. I've just turned 30. I've got a house, I've got a wife. My sex life's dirty. I've got work, I've got money to spend, I've got friends. I tend to overspend occasionally. I drink, I do drugs, but not to excess. I dress in the best I can afford. I sometimes go overboard, but not outrageously. I've been bailed out once or twice. Nearly on my knees, I've been quantitatively eased by people who care for some reason. It's always summer season. I live at the coast. 
I don't boast about my achievements. I don't have many. I coast on the coattails of any who let me. I get myself by. I land on my feet more often than not. I defeat the problems I've got. I'm just an ordinary lad. Not overly bad. Prone to the odd flash of anger, but it's over in a minute. If you sin, it'll send you straight to hell, they tell me. Guilt and shame are necessary to mould the man who comes from Derry. One city, two names, well, actually more. Caught in the middle of centuries of war. How do you come out of that intact? You don't, in fact. In Derry, it's tribal and it's spatial. When we talk about mixed marriage, we don't mean interracial. Two sides of the river foil where sectarian tension hangs in the air. Home is where the heart aches, so I got out of there. I'm cruising, I'm choosing my path, I'm comfortably off, I like a good laugh and a joke. I toke, I sniff, I smoke. I like a pint of stout when I'm out, I like a glass of wine when I'm in. And gin. Feel no pain. I'm dancing through the rain. When I come, I can go again. My problems are few and my time is my own. I don't like to be alone. Inside my head, I rage. I wish you were dead. I'm all anger and strife, my wife. She works hard. Brings in sufficient amounts to balance the accounts so that Life can continue apace. I face my future head on with no fear. I've been blissfully married for nearly five years. We might have a kid. If we did, he'd have a cool name. How happy we would be, my family of three. We'd hit the road in our camping car, follow that star wherever it goes. Who knows? I'd never be scared. I was ill-prepared for leaving home. Not nearly ready to strike out alone. I wasn't strong enough in the head. My doctor said it was a chemical imbalance. He gave me drugs to lift me out of the fog that I was in, but I binned them, having tried a few, and left that town for pastures new. I drive a van. I'm a man who delivers parts for cars. I'm in a traffic jam, but I'm looking at the stars. By day I'm writing songs, by night I'm in bars playing third fiddle to the booze and the birds. Haven't you heard? The music scene is in decline. Two 45-minute sets paid in beer or wine or do an open mic. Two songs might get you 30 minutes on a Thursday. I'm at least 10 years too late. If it started at 20, I could have been rated, but dead, like the greats at 27 or 28. Jimmy... Janice and Jim, Sandy Denny, Mama Cass, Pigpen and Kurt. That was the plan. To burn brightly, but burn out. To, to leave no doubt that I was here. I get frustrated. Because I'm outdated, I'm superannuated. I've prevaricated too long. I mean, who can write the songs of an angry young man when you're in your middle 40s? No fear of making it now. Truth be told, I'm alive but too old.
Thank you, Neil McBride. Blue is also cold, the colour of ice and the chill and the fridge and the dead body. Here is a story in 21 moments. One. After Nancy died, the house held me tight as a glove all summer. I sat in the wicker chair while downstairs Sid and Star whipped up worlds from bedsheets, upending tables, spreading the arms of the clothes horse wide. I heard them reenact Nancy's death. You have to close her eyes like this, or she won't go to heaven. If I were a better man, I'd have said, cut it out, that's enough now, and propelled them outdoors, or buried my nose in their dirty blonde hair and wept. Two. Red boat-shaped leaves drift under the kitchen door. The mothers with meaty casseroles and frozen lasagnas wrapped in silver foil stop coming by. From the bedroom window, I see Claire's little vest her white Dixie shorts and briefs flapping on the clothesline and feel like throwing up. Three. My corneas itch, dry and stinging, what I wouldn't give to weep. But Nancy's face resists, willfully vague, trimmed to shadow, despite hours on the landing staring at her photo taken with the twins cocooned in the crux of her beefy arms, dimpled shells of flesh thickening her neck, bulging in layers around her stomach. 28 kilograms in nine months. Four. At night, when the twins are asleep, I paint gorillas with aquamarine eyes, chimps the colour of the Aegean. I paint wolves, donkeys, rhinos, pigs, ducks, antelope and panthers, cerulean and cobalt, cyan and turquoise, Windsor and Prussian blue. I could go on. The smell of linseed oil clings to my hands. Five. The house grows mocking and sullen around me. Six. I paint a family of marmosets. The baby with bright up dark eyes, like the girl at the Bay Sisters funeral parlour. Her name is Lorraine. She helped to choose the coffin made from locally grown withers. A serious girl with a rose tattooed on the pearl inside of her wrist and a twist of black hair pinned in a bun. When she slipped my credit card into the reader, her sympathy flowing lovely and efficient as a hymn, I thought I could learn something. She's 25, maybe 26. Seven. The Bay Sisters have smoky glass windows, chintz curtains and two beige sofas. Lorraine asks if my wife had a favourite dress. Is there something you could drop in? I think of Nancy's crumpled Indian tunics sagging like hammocks, their cheap dye bleeding into the towels and sheets. Behind Lorraine's desk, a door marked private leads down to the basement, where Nancy lays on a stainless steel shelf, aspirated, embalmed, eyelids sealed with plastic cups. A howl lodges in my larynx. Lorraine clasps my hand. I sense a change in texture, in the light, a small opening from which something could emerge, 
like a knife through paper. Eight. How could something so big, so poisonous, grow inside my wife's head without any symptoms? I asked the registrar who took me into a cubicle by the nurse's station at A&E. Jerking his head in circular movements, the way they do in Kerala, without it meaning anything, a fact I tried to hold on to. He pointed to the screen where a white blob eclipsed swirls of dark tissue and fatty tributaries. Brain tumours are frequently asymptomatic, he said with a weary sigh. In fact, the brain is largely uncharted territory. Nine. At night, Sid asked for his pirate book, where green seas scrolled with creamy waves bleed to white gutters and bow-bellied galleons slip over the edge of the world. When he wakes from his dream, arms flaying, dry-mouthed, gulping and screaming, I know this is on his mind. What happens, he says, at the edge? Where do they go? 10. I begin to paint fish, salmon, turtles, dogfish, rays, bluefin dolphins, blowfish, snapper, white minky whales, eels, tiger sharks, rainbow carp. 11. I drive into town switching lanes, cars shine like beetles, silver smooth carapaces in orderly lines. I park the Peugeot in the loading bay opposite the funeral parlour. 12. Lorraine wears a beige raincoat. She hangs it on an old-fashioned hat stand behind her desk. I watch her slip her arms through the check lining, knot the belt loosely and walk to the corner shop for a carton of milk. She walks with gravitas, a solemn understanding of the world. 13. After Nancy was given the diagnosis, she asked me to buy her a notepad. I want to plan all the things I'm going to do when I recover. I drove to Smith's. I drove anywhere for milk, coal, ketchup, plasters, cigarettes, diesel, Indian takeouts no one would eat. I parked on Falking Hill, staring for hours at fields of barley, waving like ocean currents. Sometimes when she slept, Claire and I made love there, elbows jammed to the door. My wrist ached with the weight of us heaving like dogs in the dark, her long toes braced against the cream roof. I worried they would leave marks. Inside Smith's, I picked up the first notepad I found. It was ring-bound with pink plastic covers. Weeks after Nancy died, I found it slipped down the side of the sofa, between the arms and sagging cushions. Why didn't I go to the stationers on Sydney Street? buy one of those Japanese numbers tied with ribbon or marbled and bound with calfskin. Why didn't I take her to Barrafundal, light a blue sparking fire from driftwood like she asked? Can't we be honest, for Christ's sake? I never said that out loud, not once. 14. The night after the funeral, Claire came round, stepping over the low stone wall between our houses. A saucer-shaped moon cast a bruised glow over the bolted cabbage and webs of old man's beard. The scent of autumn rose from the damp soil. She took my cigarette to put it between her lips. I felt no desire, nothing. They're shooting stars tonight, she said. You should tell your kids. They're bits of Hallis Comet, 
some fossilised spacecraft or something. I heard it on the news. 15. I paint birds, swans, pelicans, grey-necked geese, doves, crows, macaws, peacocks, seagulls, mythical birds, the one-winged peahee who flew in pairs, the albatross and the phoenix, wings swirling, titanium white, tail feathers ring turquoise like toothpaste. I am running out of paint. 16. Dressed in black chinos and black t-shirt, I drive with one hand on the wheel. The Celts painted their faces blue in battle, indigo blue from starry woad. They spike their hair, quilled lizards arching their spines. This height a biological response to fear. 17. Lorraine gestures to the sofa. Her expression soft and wise, like the flaking frescoes of the Virgin you see in Italian churches, with downcast eyes and flowing blue robes suggesting tolerance and spines of steel. I rehearsed in the car. Can we go somewhere to talk? Grab a coffee? She studies my face. I stare at beige plains of carpet, my stomach churning. I feel a tightening in my groin. Of course, she says, let's go next door. 18. The flamingo pink chairs and tables make me feel wrong. Her cappuccino has a chocolate heart etched on the froth. She scoops it up with her spoon. Her small pink tongue curls to the warm metal. Was there something specific? She asks. My wife, I say. Nancy. At the mention of Nancy, we stare at the table. A waitress glides past with a tray of empty cups. I, I can't see her face anymore. I, I, feel, I feel like I'm falling. She nods gravely, then smiles. The same smile which swiped my credit card in the reader months ago and now looks over my head to the street outside. It's normal, she says. People I know who've been bereaved, often say it takes a while. How long is a while? She gives a little shrug. A month? Three months? Six months? A year? More than a year, would you say? She turns her hands over in her lap. I suppose that depends on the circumstances. Everybody's different, aren't they? I know it helps to talk about it. There are support groups you can join. I can give you some information on that if you like. I have learnt to leave my body, ascend adrift from lips, working at words like flies. Whole conversations pass me by. The tring-tring of her phone brings me back. She fumbles in her bag, pulls out a purple iPhone. Her fingernails are bitten to ragged silver crescents. Do you mind if I take this? I watch her pace up and down the pavement, throw her head back laughing. I guess it's the man. She catches my eye and turns away. 19. When Nancy could no longer breathe without the aid of oxygen, they took her to oncology, hooked her up to saline drips and fed her morphine. Some days she was lucid, some days she fell asleep mid-sentence. 
eyelids flickering, spittle bubbling under her mask, while I rested my hands on the black metal arms of the chair. This is how it would happen, halfway through a conversation, a drink untouched. When she could no longer walk, I carried her to the toilet, bird-boned, string-limbed, she weighed less than Sid or Star. Her dry lips grazed my neck. How could you love me like this? She whispered. I held her tight as I dared, ran my fingers through the thistle-down wisps of hair curling at the back of her neck, breathing in her pear-dropped musk of failing organs, and wanted her. I wanted her more than I've ever wanted anything. She lifted her nightgown. Fists hammered on the door. A woman shouted, What's going on in there? I'm calling a nurse right now. 20. The road leaves the city in smooth slices of concrete, warehouses, petrol stations, tarmac, a grudging surrender to wooded lanes and swaying sea pods, tinder dry grass waving either side. I drive slowly, my feet are musical on the brakes. 21. That night, I paint Nancy as a large and mythical rock, gold-beaked, clawed talons, wings messianic and wild sweeping in front of a full buck moon, like paper fluttering through space, scratching holes in its inky hollows, her deep cadmine eyes hooded, electric, furious, accusing. It almost makes me weep. Thank you, Christina Sanders. Jules Pfeiffer said, artists can color the sky red because they know it's blue. Those of us who aren't artists have to color things the way they really are, or people might think we're stupid. Oh John looking down with disdain from his Bradgate castle. Gallantry gate skater stoners grinning like contented camels. The half-man accordion players sconced outside Cafe Bruxelles. What do you mean half a man? It's just a torso. That's oh. what my mom's. Dreadlock birdards at the station begging for smack cash. The Vicky Park hermit smelling the old air. Goffs and preachers on the clock shrieking like those on the lost on the sinking ship. 
Human landmarks there to death, the familiar that almost breeds contempt. They fuck you up, these cities do. Cheddar, crisps, cunting pucker pies feeding a nation. Imagine working in a crisp factory. Oh, that'd be terrible. Why? Because we've got poles to do it. Ate up me duck four for a pound at uh, Lineker's market stall. Golden mile feels longer. I'll have a bat and a decent gram. Going basement or softback. Mosh is more of a bounce these days. It's early STA, mate. Chewing gabba gabba gat at the high cross. Little Bucharest to Livingston Road for your tobacco and tracksuit needs. And it's another club foot goal for the foxes. East Midlands Airport now selling plane tickets to pigs. Nobody knows. Not really good, are they? No, not at all. Fair this is Blue Planet. Did you see the Mercury headline with the skateboarding dog? It's Earth, Wind and Fire by Kasabian. Can't burn now in this Midland landslide. The car park kings and queens live and die here. Multi-storial burial grounds. It's shit, but it's home. What else is there? Line? The elements of surprise, that's how they did it. Thank you, Jan Horbachs with Kieran Dacey. Now we arrive at our final story. We have just one more tale to share. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you very much to all our speakers. You heard John Mason, Alexandra Losker, Sophie Methwin-Turner, Neil McBride, Christina Sanders, Jan Horbachs and Kieran Dacey, and you will hear Karen Withercombe. I'm Chris, and the music is being composed and performed by Todd Jordan. But to close this evening, let's walk with Karen Withercombe to her Ditchling Road. Ditchling Road, September dusk. The trauma of the moody lavender and bruised blue sky plays out above my head. And far below the hematoma, pavement trees are wreathed in trills that bleed. The tragic song of languid birds who spot the change in things as seasons turn. A stout, dark Cypriot, still sprightly, drags his feet in slight exhaustion from the heat. Jacket slung over shoulder, in a challenge, like a matador, to charging time and tides. House lights illuminate the scene, a cosy golden-yellow glow of halls and evenings. Leaves waiting for the drop in mercury are black and green so deep it doesn't have a name. Young girls with swinging ponytails screech at their friends and so-called friends online. A lady with a trouser suit of beige and pin-curled hair toils up the hill behind a trolley bag, her prop. A smell of rot pervades the air, tobacco bonfires drawing in their own within the dust and orange street lights halo in the vague beer shimmer of a Sunday night. Within the peony, dry withered by my door, 
A scratchy, creaky slithering now emanates. Taxis, denuded of their tourists, ply their trade through empty streets of nameless shades. And motor cars, so self-important with their whoosh-ha-shu, compete with the ancient songs from boughs above. I sit on my front step, dreaming on words, face livid uplit by the screen's blue glow, whilst figures, indigo and purple, navigate the pool of light and fade into new night. Please check the Old Market website for more information and further episodes of Wilder Stories at theoldmarket.com. If you like the show, please tell anyone you think might enjoy it. Like and subscribe and leave a positive review on whichever service you're using to listen to us. Till next time.